I want to welcome National Chief Sean Attenshuth Atlio back to the Canadian Club of Toronto and recognize that our meeting today occurs on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of New Credit. National Chief, it is just a little over a year since you last addressed us. At that time, you stressed four priorities. Affirmation through treaty implementation and land claim settlement, education investment in young people, economic opportunity, and community safety. This year has seen heightened awareness of these First Nation priorities, all of which, as we know, are priorities most Canadians take for granted in their own communities, but are also priorities that are, increasing, are increasingly top of mind for all Canadians. National Chief, whether it was in your response to the conditions at Apawaskat, uh, your push for action on the report on First Nations education, or your participation at the historic Crown Gathering in Ottawa, your commitment to mutual respect, building bridges, and working together for prosperity has been clearly evident. First Nations young people, educated with meaningful employment, are a vital part of the new story which you, National Chief, and a great many Canadians want to see written for Canada. Vital also are sustainable economic opportunities and cooperation on the environment and natural resources that respect the proud heritage of our First Peoples. All of these things are possible with the right leadership and commitment by all Canadians to a more equitable and prosperous Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, our speaker is a hereditary chief of the Ahusat First Nation. He was born as far west in Canada as one can travel. He has a master's degree in education, has run a successful business, is the chancellor of the Vancouver Island University, has fought for First Nations prosperity for many years, and without me having to say more, is clearly the right person to be at this podium today. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming National Chief Sean Atlio to the Canadian Club of Toronto. Thank you um, so much, Nick. This is a nice short podium, like this one here. <laughs> it's the small things in life sometimes, right? I really, really do appreciate um, this wonderful um, invitation back. Thank you so much for um, that very kind introduction. And I join you, Nick, in, in expressing, as we do in, in, um, in all of our respective nations, coming from the Nuchanotahauset people in my language, expressing respect that we're here in Machinopsik, Matikitsu, Mississauga of the New Credit. As we like to say amongst our peoples, we're in territories upon which someone else's laws are in place. And we always begin in this fashion, in this manner. I'm really thankful to be here with all of you and also 
want to recognize um, Ontario Regional Chief Angus Toulouse, my colleague on the National Executive, uh, as was introduced as part of the head table. I want to thank all of those at the Canadian Club and, and CIBC. Um, thanks for this uh, invitation back and the support, especially for the students that are here, uh, the young people. Um, just a shout out uh, in, my, in my language, say, what's up, Aboriginal students of Toronto? So happy to see you here representing. We, um, it's already been a really inspiring um, visit so far, and uh, to see so many business leaders here embracing the uh, Indigenous young people, to let them know that whether they're budding uh, documentary filmmakers, uh, they're pursuing their education, um, that they belong. They can sit here with, uh, with the suits of Toronto and know that the future is bright and uh, that you're included, that your voice is important, that you're important to the future of this country. So anyway, I'm just a little excited that the young people are here and uh, want to express that in, in that manner. So thanks to all of you for welcoming them here. I, um, I do remember very well um, the opportunity, the great privilege, Nick, that you re referenced being here uh, about a year ago, and uh, the, the topics that we, that we focused on. I'm very honored to be back and um, to talk about the enduring relationship between First Nations and the rest of Canada. I spoke of the proud heritage of Indigenous nations and the treaties that, that uh, were made between our nations and the, the newcomers. The relationships set in treaty are important to Canada and represent the way forward. As we discussed then, and as we still very much are aware of now, the stark and tragic inequities First Nations face today reveal that this relationship has been denied for far too long. We shared views of the possibility of a new story, one filled with hope and opportunity for First Nations. Today, I want to continue this conversation but turn our focus sharply to the economic side of the story. Reconciliation is a complex concept, but we can all agree it compels action right now. I will suggest that reconciliation can be best approached as the building of a renewed foundation with four cornerstones. Rights recognition, healing and education, capacity, and the fourth that will be my principal focus today, that's seizing economic potential. On January 24th of this year, as Nick alluded to, First Nations leaders and representatives of the Government of Canada, including the Prime Minister and the Governor-General, joined together at the Crown First Nations gathering. The purpose was clear. It was a first step to renew the relationship. In the words of Governor-General David Johnson, he said, we have deep roots together of shared promise and partnership. This was reflected in the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which sought to achieve balance by allowing Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people to coexist and work together in the land that we now call Canada. The Royal Proclamation predated Confederation by more than 100 years and is the foundation of our modern relationship, were the words that he shared. Moving forward and building on this renewed foundation has and will continue to require our best efforts and genuine commitment in plain language, it will be hard work. My elders have always counseled me that in reality, we have only one of two choices. We can do things the hard way or the harder way. It's one especially for 
the students that are with us here today. When I think back to Algebra 11, anyone have a tough time with math? Okay, adults, come on. Anyone here? I know this is a... I mean, we're not all, uh, we're not all necessarily that great at math. Some of us uh, have a tougher time than others. And I remember saying to my dad, Dad, I can't do this math, this algebra. It's too hard. You can have what you say, son. There's got to be an easy way. Isn't there some tricks you can teach me to get through this? It's too tough. I can't do it. You can have what you say, son. Long story short, I finally figured it out. What he was trying to tell me was, you apply yourself 100%. You make every effort, and you will get it done. So to the students here, it took me two tries at it, but I got through Algebra 11. <laughs> I realized that it, would, it was the hard work that I had to choose. The harder way is not applying yourself 100%. So the first point of our struggle to renew and rebalance our re relationship was achieved through political advocacy of many great First Nations leaders of the past. 30 years ago this very month, Section 35 was enshrined in the Constitution of Canada. Section 35 recognizes and affirms Aboriginal rights and treaty rights. It is a relatively brief, hard-fought-for, and straightforward clause, but it changed Canada's legal landscape forever. While the Crown continues to attempt to limit and restrict this reference, the courts have repeatedly supported First Nations views and confirmed Section 35 as a solemn commitment that must be given meaningful content. This recognition of our jurisdiction forms the first cornerstone of the effort that's required right now. The second point in involves one of the most poignant aspects of the struggle, and it involves dealing with the deep wounds that perpetuate harm to this very day. Seven generations of our peoples experienced residential schools and systematic denial of our basic rights and liberties through the so-called Civilization Acts, and decades upon decades of failed policies and legislative efforts aimed at marginalizing, displacing, destabilizing, and isolating our peoples. The Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in its final report issued more than 15 years ago stated these policies and this approach have miserably failed our peoples and indeed all of Canada. The apology offered by Prime Minister Harper in 2008 and now the Truth and Reconciliation Commission add another cornerstone to the foundation of renewal. We must recall also that this period of reconciliation is about healing and recovery for all of us, not just First Nations. Throughout the period of residential schools, Canadian children also were only taught a negative view of our cultures and of our ways. In other words, in essence, we were erased from the official record of this country's history. Education, as I've said many times and echoed by First Nations leaders across this country, must be a first priority. We seek nothing less than a full guarantee of quality education for our children that equips them with the tools and skills they need for the 21st century while valuing and embracing their language, culture, and identity. Education as well for all Canadians to know and understand the true story, the reality of treaty, and that understanding and balance are key aspects of our shared future. Building capacity through education links to a third element that is equipping First Nations governments to be fully effective and fully accountable to their peoples. First Nations governments must have the tools to build effective public services and public policy to effectively plan and serve their peoples. And there are excellent examples and work underway amongst our nations, like the Sagamook Anishinaabek here on the north shore of Lake Huron, 
who achieved ISO international standards, 9001. And this certification is just one such example. We need to grow out this success through partnerships and support that enable every First Nations to build their capacity. Now, to complete the foundation and begin building anew, we must turn to our shared economic reality, which is both a challenge as well as a tremendous opportunity. This is the critical fourth cornerstone, essential for reconciliation and for our mutual success. First Nations leaders entered treaty as economic arrangements to acquire specific tools, including education to equip their nations as needed to deal with economic realities. Today, the achievement of reconciliation underway through legal recognition, healing, and growing capacity can only be realized as First Nations are able to use our treaties and our rights to build our economic capacity. Our people and our lands hold tremendous potential. Today, we must enable and unleash this economic potential. And there are compelling reasons and strategies to make gains quickly. And let me start with some of the some of these reasons. The first and most obvious to act now is that the First Nations population growth rate of over 25% compared to only 6% for the general population. Young people, that means you're at the front edge of an Aboriginal tsunami that is washing across our respective territories. When we combine this growth with the reality that our working age population experiences three times higher rates of unemployment, the math becomes painfully obvious not just for our communities, but indeed for all of Canada. We can invest in our people to benefit all Canadians or continue paying the price to perpetuate poverty. Canada's economic fundamentals require greater economic participation of our quickly growing population. It's worth repeating the research showing that closing the skills and education gaps between First Nations and the rest of the population will generate 400 billion in additional output to Canada's GDP and result in savings of $115 billion in government expenditures. Earlier this year, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce identified skill shortages and specifically Aboriginal peoples as part of a top 10 list of barriers to Canada's overall competitiveness. Furthermore, as Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney points out, uh, pointed out earlier this month, there are tremendous opportunities for value-added commodity production from energy to agriculture. But that in order to maximize these opportunities, the need to improve skills across the spectrum has never been greater. Second, we must recognize that almost every resource development activity currently operating or planned is occurring within 200 kilometers of a First Nations community and right in the middle of our traditional territories. And if we consider this element, resource, the resource sector, resource activities alone, we can see that current patterns and approaches and government policy only hinder economic potential and further hold back and deny First Nation rights to resources and economic participation. We need to smash this status quo. Currently, First Nations are often the last to know about major resource development. This relegates our communities to few options, usually resulting in confrontation. And so we end up with protests and legal battles that frustrate opportunity for everyone and deepen tensions today and into the future. First Nations continue to make it clear. They're not opposed to development, but we must be involved at the outset. First Nations rights and responsibilities demand that we're full partners in discussion about exploration, ownership, participation and production 
and long-term sustainability of our environments, our communities, and our futures. Recent federal announcements we've all heard about, about streamlining the regulatory process has created further fear and concern for many First Nations. Our rights have never been properly addressed in the existing processes. While we can all agree about efficiency, we must see a clear and explicit commitment for our rights and interests to be addressed as is required by the federal constitutional duty. There is a path to win-win solutions for all involved. The path forward requires that we look back to treaty and our early joint economic ventures, such as the fur trade. We can recapture the essential elements of shared gains that were hallmarks of those efforts. This required developing an understanding. It required respect and a real relationship. Just as companies have learned well the importance of protocol in breaking open lucrative foreign markets, so too can relationship building create the path forward to unleashing economic potential throughout Canada. Our economic visions are not dissimilar to the rest of Canada. We envision sustainable communities with healthy families central to our overall success. At the same time, our Indigenous values, our traditional knowledge and our connection to our lands and waters is and will always be an unshakable bond. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples calls on states to work in mutual partnership and respect with Indigenous peoples and sets out the standard of free, prior and informed consent. Rather than a back-end loaded requirement for consultation or threat as some would suggest, I see free, prior and informed consent as not only possible but practical for business and governments and necessary for sustained mutual benefit. The best of the Canadian corporate sector has already advanced impressive commitment regarding the UN Declaration and specific corporate social responsibility measures in dealings with First Nations. I believe Corporate Canada increasingly gets this. This is the path to certainty through, through recognition that will yield mutual benefit. What does this mean in specific terms for business? It means supporting local economies and investing as good corporate citizens, something already done in the vast majority of places where business operates. Dealing with First Nations should be no different. And in fact, we invite Corporate Canada to understand and work with our communities, reach down to support the young people and pull them through to graduation. You will graduate, right? Investing in our communities is a strategic, long-term economic stimulus plan for all of Canada. The resource sector continues to be a prime driver for Canada as a whole. As Prime Minister Harper recently noted, mining alone contributed $50 billion to GDP in 2011. We've seen increasing employment among First Nations in the mining sector, and clearly more will be needed as 40% of the industry's workforce will retire in the next five years. We also, also see increasing involvement of First Nations-owned companies emerging and winning contracts for every aspect of mining operations. Diavik Mines alone reported in, in 2010 that it spent $2 billion with Aboriginal businesses. What, what I'm speaking about goes far beyond employment and service contracts. This is about ownership, about partnership and profit. There's no question that First Nations have an entrepreneurial drive and there's every opportunity for increased success. I was telling the young people that I was a breakdancer back in the day. I was a breakdance instructor. I was, 
I was earning a paycheck doing that as well at the same time. We are entrepreneurial and, and we have every ability to be. First Nations strive for innovation and above all else to grow economic opportunity that's sustainable in an environmental manner and for the future of our community. The very best opportunities right now are those that are grown from within our communities. Community-driven economic strategies for growth, responding to the needs and interests of the people are yielding dividends right now and are key opportunities for the future. We see this happening across the country in new energy sectors of the economy, where First Nations are at the same stage of development as others at the beginning and are leading the way forward. There's many compelling stories and examples across the country without exception where First Nations have had the opportunity to drive change and the results are mutually beneficial. This is a sharp contrast to unilateral action which has created tension and even devastation. We can take examples in the area of hydroelectricity, for example. In the 70s, unilateral action galvanized contention and confrontation, pitting the James Bay Cree against industry and the province of Quebec. Through their leadership and foresight, they clearly asserted their rights and have, years later, now completely turned this situation around. They are now the undisputed economic engine of the entire region. There are lessons and practical strategies to be seized upon in all of this. As Grand Chief Matthew Kuhncombe said during the Crown First Nations gathering, clearly a new way of doing things is called for. The federal government, the provinces, and we ourselves must have the courage to think outside the box, to find the workable and practical solutions that this country needs now. So let me sum up. The economic imperative is very clear, and we all have much at stake. First Nations will become increasingly important economic agents, unleashing our own potential and, and supporting sustainable opportunities in Canada's critical resource sector, labour force and economy. Whether through agriculture, mining, fishing, forestry, energy or emerging technologies, our nations and our rights are a reality and they present unlimited opportunities if we can get this right. And I believe we can get this right. We need to speed up the pace of resolving land claims and fulfilment of legal obligations including resource revenue sharing. We need partners that support and enable our governance capacity to drive and unlock economic potential. We need progressive and innovative approaches to infrastructure and support for First Nations to operate in the modern business world, which includes things like entry into the digital economy. Tools like procurement strategies can assist in our proving successful in this province and in others. And so by way of concluding, let me share this notion. And it is that we should not be daunted by the complexity or fooled into thinking that somebody else or a future generation will solve these problems. This is the harder path, one filled with despair and perpetually worsening pain and suffering. Let us instead be seized by the opportunity that this age-old challenge presents. Let's choose the hard work. This is the path of reconciliation. The foundation of reconciliation with the cornerstones in first, our legal rights, second, healing and education, and third, capacity can and must be made complete with our full economic participation. With this as our solid foundation, we can then live the promise of the ancestors, our collective ancestors, 
and fulfill the potential of treaty, of real partnership, and of the greatness that this country has yet to achieve. Through hard work and determination, we will have achieved our great new national dream of reconciliation. And then there will be no limit to what we can achieve together. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, National Chief. I'd like to welcome Alison Lote, President-elect of the Canadian Club of Toronto, to say a few words. <laughs> Mr. Alio, I also welcome the smaller podium. <laughs> it's much appreciated. Um, I wanted to take this opportunity to, to thank you, uh, National Chief, for being with us today. Uh, your message is one of hope and of opportunity, and we're delighted that you've shared it with us at the Canadian Club today. Uh, we're also delighted because your leadership has enabled us to attract so many young people and students uh, to lunch this afternoon. Um, it is our goal at the club to give voice to the issues and to the people that will define the future of this country, so thank you for giving us the opportunity to do that. Um, as I heard you say this morning on Metro Morning, uh, we mustn't lose another generation to failed reconciliation. Canada will be a much stronger place, both economically and socially, if we work together and if we use the talents and ambitions of our young people, um, particularly those from our First Nations, to forge a better path forward. Um, so in that spirit, everyone, please join me in thanking Sean Atlio. Thank you very much, Alison, and thank you again, National Chief Atlio. Now, before we adjourn for lunch, uh, please bear with me uh, while I list a few upcoming events. On April 25th, the Canadian Club of Toronto, together with Equal Voice, will once again join forces to spotlight women in politics at the seventh annual Women in Public Life Luncheon, when we pay tribute to the leader of the Ontario NDP, Andrea Horvath. On April 30th, direct from the CBC's flagship news program, The National with Peter Mansbridge, the insiders will join our live audience for their first public speaking appearance. And on May 1st, the Canadian Club of Toronto will be presenting its Canadian of the Year Award to Mark Carney, Governor of the Bank of Canada. Since 1992, the Canadian Club has awarded Canadians whose efforts and example have improved the lives of others and benefited us as a nation. We're very excited about that event. Don't forget that a podcast of today's event will be available in a couple of days on iTunes. Simply vi uh, visit the event listing on our website to download that podcast. While you're online, please check out our Twitter feed you can follow us at CDNCLUBTO, that's short for Canadian Club Toronto, for all the latest updates. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We continue to be grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their promotion of Canadian Club events. 
Now, I'd like to ask uh, National Chief Atlio to draw a business card. The lucky winner will receive two tickets to an upcoming Canadian Club event of his or her choice. Thank you very much. And from Tim Hortons, Nick Javor. There he is. Congratulations, Nick. Uh, Lynn will bring those tickets to you, uh, or the, the, the passes to you later. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please rise as you are able and join me in a toast to Canada. To Canada. Please enjoy your lunch.